Mark chapter 3. Now, I want to remind you of where we've been. Last week, we left off in verses 7 through 19, and we observed a number of things that lead us to the passage that we're studying today. And namely, it was that we saw how there were crowds coming to Jesus, and from that point on, Crowds are going to continue to come. We're going to see that today. People are swelling around him because they're hearing about his miracles. He's a teacher that nobody's ever uh, heard someone like him before. Miracles they've never seen before. Uh, Healings. He's healing all kinds of sickness, disease, and ailments. And so crowds are swelling. And Jesus is speaking to the crowds, but we also noticed that some of the people that are coming are simply coming to get something from him rather than to be with him. And we noted how physical needs and desperation sometimes can really drive us out of our mind to not think properly. And we saw that with the crowds. But we also noticed how Jesus went up on the mountain to pray all night and he was with the Father and he came down from the mountain and he chose those whom he wanted to be with him. And those were his 12 disciples, and he actually appoints them to be apostles. Apostles is sent ones, special messengers, those that he would send on a special mission for him. And so we noted the difference between the crowd and the committed, and of course, we want to be the committed. We want to be committed disciples of Jesus. We contrasted that. And now we're entering into Mark chapter 3 and verse 20, and we'll pick up the story uh, right here. Here's what the Bible says. And he, Jesus, came home, home is Capernaum, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, that's his natural family, they went out to take custody of him. Some translations say, seize him. For they were saying he has lost his senses. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul or Beelzebub. And he casts out the demons by the ruler of demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. And he said, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. He is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder the house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And then his mother and his brothers arrived and standing outside, they sent word to him and they called him. A crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, who are my mother and my brothers? I don't want anybody to say that. Jesus is the only one that can, all right? Just don't don't go home saying that to your family today. Looking about as those who were sitting around him, the disciples namely, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. There's a lot of ground here to cover, and I hope to do a good job explaining this and landing on some applicational points that we can take away today. But let me explain this first contextually, because if you're not going to study this closely, you probably wouldn't see this. But this passage of scripture is actually two stories. Now, if you read it right through, you're going to think it's a sequential order and it's one story, but that's actually not true. What you have is a story with Jesus's family, and then you have a story with Jesus and the religious leaders. Mark says scribes, Matthew says Pharisees, but many of the Many of the scribes were Pharisees, so scribes and Pharisees, so there's two stories. But what's interesting is Mark starts the story with Jesus' family, inserts the story about the scribes and Jesus' interaction, and then closes the story with Jesus' family. That you might call, it's a story within a story. Mark does this at least four times, and there's a reason that he does this. He does this because he believes that these are related, even though they are separate. It's a style of writing as well, and so it's important to see that. But what I want to bring out today as we look at this passage and we study it is that there are some perspectives that people have of Jesus that I think it's important for us to pause and look very closely at. We're going to look at three of them today. Two of them are simply outrageous. I mean, they are ridiculous and they are outrageous, but we want to 
We want to understand why people saw Jesus that way. Why did they think the way that they did? Why did they have this perspective? And how did that perspective inform and influence the way that they approached him, the way that they saw him, and of course, the way that they responded to him? It's important so that we, of course, have the right perspective of Jesus And so with that said, let me go ahead and share these with you. The first perspective, I'm going to move toward the scribes and the Pharisees. So I'm going to fast forward uh, past his family. We're going to go back to them. But the first perspective is this. Jesus is demonized. Now, I just cringe saying that, okay? I'm not saying that's our perspective, but they had a perspective that Jesus is demonized. The scribes and the Pharisees actually thought this about Jesus. There were four things that you can see in the passage from verse 22 to verse 30. And the first is this. The religious leaders believed that Jesus's power was from Satan, And we know that because verse 22 explicitly says, this is them talking, they say, he is possessed and he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Now pause right there. You should cringe. These are people saying about the son of God that he is is satanic. He is literally functioning by the power of Satan. He is possessed. He is filled with demons. This is their perspective of Jesus. Now, you got to park and think about that for a minute. You can't just move on. That's a big deal. Everybody say amen. That's a big deal. I think Jesus is filled with demons. All right, that's, that's not just a bad day. That's a bad life. Why is this their perspective? Well, you really wouldn't know that this was a reaction to something that happens in Matthew chapter 12. Now we know that these are synoptic gospels. So when you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are synoptic gospels. John's gospel has about 85% different content in there, different aspects of Jesus's life and ministry. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're like 75% the same, but some of them have different details. And so when you put them together, you find detail that helps you understand the story better. And so you won't really fully get why Jesus is reacting this way unless you read Matthew 12, 22. So let me do that for you because we understand the scribes when we do. And here's what it says. Then a demon possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. And he healed him so that the mute man spoke and he saw. All the crowds were amazed and they were saying, now, now catch this, they were saying, cannot, this cannot be the son of David. This man cannot be the son of David. In other words, is this man the Messiah? Is this man the son of God? And what they're doing is they're saying that to the religious leaders. They're saying that to the Pharisees and the scribes. Why? Because they're Israel's rulers. They're Israel's teachers. And so when you have a question, you go to the teacher and that's what they're doing. So when they ask the question, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? It says the Pharisees heard what they said and responded, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. That was their reaction. You could call that reaction theology. And that's not a good way to to do any type of theology, but it is a normal way that people do derive their their source of truth and doctrine. And so they're responding this way. The the people, they witness Jesus's power and they're asking the religious leaders, what is going on? Who is this man? But the scribes are saying, no, he's, he's of Beelzebub. What is, who is Beelzebub? That's such a weird name. It's not like any of us run around our house talking about Beelzebub. Like, I cast out Beelzebub in the name of Jesus. You know, it's like that person's acting like Beelzebub or Beelzebul. We don't use that language. And so this is a reference to an ancient pagan god named Baal. Sometimes we'd say Baal. And, you know, when you put this, it's a compound word. It's not just in Greek, but if you go back to a Hebrew rendering of Beelzebub, it's not Lord of the Flies, like somebody would, some people would say. What this really means is it means the one who has dominion over the house, the one who has authority over the house. But in their culture, they would understand this reference to be Satan. And so when they said Beelzebul or Beelzebub, they meant Satan, everybody knew it. And so these people thought, that Jesus' power was from Satan. Scary thought, but that's where they were. Number two, the religious leaders sought to oppose the ministry of Jesus. They were invested into a conspiracy to kill Jesus. Remember verse six? It says they were angry in the synagogue. They left, conspired with the Herodians to kill Jesus. And so they're invested in this conspiracy, but they don't know how to cover it up because the people all around them absolutely know that Jesus has power. 
Jesus is healing the sick and he's casting out demons and he's performing miracles. And there's too many eyewitnesses for the Pharisees to outright accuse Jesus in front of all the people because you have somebody that was sick, you have somebody that was demonized and now they're healed or they're in their right mind. And so what are you gonna say to the crowds? Jesus, is, his power is from Beelzebub. That's the only thing that they can come up with because they want to cast doubt on the source of his power and they want to discredit his ministry. That's sometimes what conspiracies will do. If they can accuse him and discredit him and say, listen, yes, there's power. We don't deny that, but it's the source of his power that you have to really discern because it's not from God. They didn't believe that Jesus was from God. Now, it's one thing to not believe in Jesus, but it's another thing to be anti-Jesus. Now, listen closely, because this is the spirit of Antichrist. The Bible teaches us this, and it's a large summary here, but the Bible teaches that the spirit of Antichrist is in the world, animating and even infusing and infecting those unwitting vessels, people that are open or porous or available to the bidding of this satanic will, these spirits that are in the world. But Satan is the spirit of Antichrist, and it teaches us that that spirit of Antichrist will grow in the lives and the minds and the systems and the structures of this world until it will be personified in the manifestation of a person taking place of which the Bible calls the Antichrist. And so what we see, even though this is the religious leaders here, Whether it's the Romans or it's the Jewish religious leaders, we see an antichrist spirit infecting and affecting people. Now, it's important for us to recognize that because it shows just how far the Jewish religious leaders had gone. This is not just a natural thing, friends. This is not just... These are uh, Jewish leaders that are trying to protect the Torah. Now, listen, I've got a lot of friends and you know, I've been doing this for a while, and so every now and again, I'll be talking to somebody who wants to protect and preserve and remind people of our Jewish roots and the origins that we have in our faith that goes back to Jesus being Jewish and the Old Testament being thoroughly Jewish. And we need to appreciate that. We need to understand that. The Old Testament may be the Old Testament, but it's still relevant for today. And I do appreciate that perspective. But every now and again, I'll be talking to someone and because Jews have been mistreated, which is absolutely true, and we ally ourselves with the Jewish people as Jesus is and God's first friends, and there's still a covenant, there are still promises that are made to those people because we wanna protect. Sometimes we, we talk about the Pharisees like, well, they were Jesus's brothers and, and they, really, you know, they were really doing what they were supposed to. No, listen, <laughs> this is an antichrist spirit that had infected even the Jewish religious leaders. And when you get to the point of the crucifixion, what you find is that every person, every human, every ethnicity, Jew and Gentile was complicit in the crucifixion of Christ. Every one of us is complicit. So it's not just Jew and it's not just Gentile, it's all of us. The Romans were there. The disciples scattered and betrayed. The Jewish leaders, the crowd was yelling out crucifying. We're all complicit in all of that. And so what we find here is a spirit that is at work. I want you to know there's, there are demon powers. There are demon spirits. Jesus did not come and have a power or he wasn't sourced by demon spirits. He was casting out demon spirits is what Jesus was doing. He was exercising authority over the demonic power. And so it's important for us to recognize that demon spirits can influence anybody. If we give ourselves over to an antichrist mindset, this is exactly what happens. And I would tell you that developing a conspiracy is intentional, it's methodical, and it's extremely effective. I don't know that I thought a lot about conspiracies until the last couple years. It seems like everywhere you turn, that's a conspiracy theory. And depending on what side of whatever you're on, you know, uh, that's a conspiracy. We almost like use it as a label to not have to listen to anything on a particular side. It's it's just an easy way out, isn't it? (laughs) Anytime you label, it's an easy way out. It's like, that's what this is, meaning I don't ever have to listen to anything that is under that label, which, you know, in some cases is fair. But my point is, is that conspiracies are effective and as they oppose the ministry of Jesus, this is what they've engaged in. And I would tell you 
that the religious spirit and the political spirit in their day, probably in our day, is one and the same. They seek to control people through a narrative. That's how it works. That is what doctrines of demons are. Doctrines of demons are not just from theology, it's from ideology as well. And that's why we need discernment in the days we're living, and so did they. So did they, because there are many conspiracies that are set against the person and the purpose of Jesus to oppose him entirely. And we find that here in this passage. We also see that Jesus has to clarify how spiritual warfare really works. And don't you love how simple Jesus really is? I mean, it's just so funny. Like, all of this conspiracy, all of this narrative, all of this story playing out, and here's what Jesus says in verse 23. (laughs) How can Satan drive out Satan? I think he paused right there. And there are people in the crowd going, yeah, that makes sense. How can Satan drive out? I kind of have this voice somewhere inside me that's like, yeah. (laughs) I feel like I'd be that guy. Yeah, Satan doesn't drive out. That doesn't work. You know, I don't know if I come off like a New York. I don't know. I don't know if you're from New Jersey. I apologize, but... If Satan is divided against himself, then his kingdom doesn't stand. A house divided against itself will be finished. This is what he's saying. What a terrible war strategy. Jesus is responding to them. Would a general command his soldiers to take out their own fortress? Would a politician tell his associates to undermine his own campaign? Would Satan undermine Satan? And then he tells them a parable, verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds a strong man and then he will plunder his house. It doesn't get more simple and clear as it pertains to spiritual warfare. He explains it and he says to them to cut right through all of it. He's like, listen, if somebody is going to go into another person's home and plunder their goods, first they have to have the might and the force to be able to do it and then they need to go and restrain that person so that they can plunder And so one that is weaker is not going to overcome one that is stronger. It doesn't work. Not only is what you're saying a bad war strategy, it's just not even logical. And I think everybody in the crowd at this point is kind of shaking their head to the clarity of Jesus' teaching. But then Jesus moves from there, and this is really, to me, one of the most important parts of the passage. Jesus warns everyone how dangerous this perspective really is, and, and we need to be mindful of it as well today. Look what he says, verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. Whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. I think perhaps this is the most misunderstood passage from the mouth and the words of Jesus. And to be very clear with you today, it shouldn't be. It's actually not complicated because the context of the passage dictates the meaning of Jesus's words. And so what is happening here? Let's remind ourselves. Jesus is being called satanic. Jesus's power is being called the source of it, at least, is is he saying he's actually doing this because he's functioning by the prince of demons. That's what's happening. Jesus is a fraud. Jesus is satanic. Jesus' power is from the devil. And so Jesus responds by saying, every blasphemy will be forgiven the sons of men except the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, maybe you don't use the word blasphemy. So what does that mean? Blasphemy means to have contempt for God. It can mean to insult, mock, dishonor his name or his holiness and he's saying that all blasphemies will be forgiven except that which, is the Holy, that which is against the Holy Spirit. Well, what does this mean? If you say that Jesus is from Satan, everything that Jesus does, therefore, is fraudulent, is satanic, is evil. If that is your perspective, the Holy Spirit is the agency by which conviction comes to all people for sin, righteousness, and judgment. John chapter 16, this is what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. He comes to bring conviction for sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's the agency of conviction. Jesus is the bringer of salvation. If we think that Jesus is evil and the Holy Spirit comes to bring conviction to our hearts that we have sin and we need a savior, 
then we blaspheme the Holy Spirit by rejecting and resisting what he is doing to bring us to Jesus because we believe Jesus is evil. That's all that this means. In other words, blaspheming the Holy Spirit is rejecting and resisting the work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. That's all it means. And that is literally what Jesus is saying. If you think that Jesus is evil, then you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And this is an eternal sin. Why? Because you can't get saved. You can't get saved unless you come to the Savior. You can't get forgiven unless you receive forgiveness from the only one that has forgiveness. Every now and again, people get confused about this. And maybe you've been confused. Have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Did I say something wasn't God when maybe that it was God? Friends, this has nothing to do with whether or not our discernment was perfect or not. What it has to do with is whether or not we say that Jesus Christ is Lord or we think Jesus is a fraud, a lunatic, or a liar. And that's the difference here. So let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin? Do you believe that Jesus rose on the third day? proving that he was the son of God and that he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the father. Do you believe that Jesus is coming back for you? Friends, stay there. (laughs) Amen, don't move. Grow, but don't move. If you believe that, you're not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, what can happen if a person rejects Jesus and says Jesus isn't Lord Jesus isn't the son of God. Jesus is evil and everything Jesus does do is evil. If a person is doing that, that would be an atheist in our culture. That's what an atheist would do. It's not just a person that doesn't believe. It's a person that is anti-theist, a person that is anti-Jesus, actively working to prove that Jesus is other than who he is. That's what we're talking about. That's what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So when you see an atheist teaching other people that Jesus is not who he says he is, that is blasphemy in the Holy Spirit. And if a person remains in that condition up until the point that they die, they will be sent into an eternity without God. Friends, make no mistake about it. Jesus himself is very clear about this. I mean, everything in our lives in terms of salvation is wet cement until the day we die and then it's concrete and it's over. There's no coming back from that. Once that concrete solidifies, There's no coming back from that. If a person doesn't profess Christ in this life, if they don't receive forgiveness in this life, if they don't yield themselves to Jesus Christ being Lord and Savior, there's no coming back from that. There are some people that believe it's post-mortem salvation, that the gates of heaven are open after we die. It is a lie. It is not true. It is not in the Bible. I've argued with people over this. It's called Christian inclusionism. It is not true. And if it's true, then why should we evangelize? Because everybody's going to heaven anyways. It's false. It's a doctrine of demons. Yes, of course, it's what Satan wants us to believe. Satan wants us to believe that you'll get another shot in the next life if you're wrong in this one. No, friends, you don't. There's a sober reality to this. And I think even for us, people that are in church or grow up in church, for our kids that grow up in church and hear the gospel again and again and again, but don't respond to it. Don't yield to it. Friends, we've got to pray. We've got to cry out to the living God and say, there really is a reality that's coming where people aren't going to get a second chance. There is a sin that leads to death, Second John says. A sin that leads to death. And that's sober. And I don't know if I would pick this passage if I wasn't going through the book of Mark today. You know, it isn't the happy passage. But it's something that's very vital for us is is that there is a spirit of antichrist that is at work in the world to convince people that Jesus is a fraud. Jesus is not real. I would tell you this though, your assurance of salvation is not based on how you behave. It is based on what you believe. Every time somebody says to me, like, I'm not sure if I'm saved, I go, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior, the Son of the living God? They say, yes. Do you believe that he forgives you of your sin? Yes. Then just believe that. Some denominations will create a doctrine called the assurance of salvation. Usually they're reformed and have a Calvinistic doctrine, which means God chooses who's saved and who's not, but I won't get into that today. I don't, I don't, I'm not in that camp, but they'll develop a a teaching called the assurance of salvation. And they do that because people do question their salvation. I want to tell you the only assurance of salvation that you have is whether or not you believe in Jesus. We don't have to develop another doctrine to prove that we need to have assurance of salvation. What I'm saying to you is, is that you, the Bible says all who call on the name of the Lord are, call on the name of the Lord. 
Forgiveness is only found in the once and for all sacrifice. And his name is? That's right, friends. And so what I teach people when it comes to assurance of salvation is believe on Jesus. And I think if we preach the cross and the resurrection more often, we're all gonna have a lot more assurance of salvation. So can I tell you to the church of Jesus Christ, can I tell you something? Never get tired of hearing the message of the cross. It is foolishness to the world, but it is the power of God unto salvation. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Friend, if we get tired of hearing the simple gospel, oh Ben, I already know, if we get tired of hearing that, we will lose a generation. So those of you that are saved and you've been saved for 20, 30 years, smile when you hear the cross preached. It goes out of style in some places because it's better to preach about being happy, healthy, wealthy, and everything you ever wanted, you get. You're gonna leave church today, your purse is gonna be full, your wallets are gonna be fat, and bless God, everything's gonna be awesome for you today. We laugh because some of you have suffered. That doesn't work in every continent of the world every nation of the world. False doctrine does not work, it is not real. What we have is greater than silver and gold. What we have is greater than houses and stuff. We've got Jesus Christ. And this is the hope of eternal glory that we have in him. You can clap, amen, you can, let's stop. (laughs) I don't know how to coordinate with your clap, but we're trying, you know. And what I'm saying is, is this, is, is that you can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit unless you reject and resist Jesus. Don't be confused about this passage. It's very simple. It was never meant to be confusing. But if you're someone today and you feel like, man, you're struggling with your salvation, and maybe the reason you're struggling is not because you're worried if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, like said, Jesus is satanic, but maybe it is that you keep struggling with the same sin. Maybe you have a problem that just doesn't go away. I wanna tell you, Our pitiful performance is not what brings us into the presence of Christ. How many of you really think that you're everything that you ought to be if it's all banking on you? I mean, the older you get, the more you realize, man, my pitiful performance before God just ain't that impressive. You understand? I mean, it's not not gonna cut it. Now, do I want you to grow? Yes, am I making an excuse for sin? No. That's not the point. But the point is, is that sometimes we, people will struggle with their salvation. And if you're here and that's you, or if you're watching online, listen, I get it. I get it. I hate those sins. Amen, I hate those sins. I want them out of my life. I hate showing up to God and going, man, I said this again. I did this again. I got mad again. Remember, we just talked about it yesterday, God. <laughs> and the more honest you get, the more you realize, like, man, this just sucks. For the kids, I'm sorry. I, you shouldn't say that. And so you struggle, like, well, does God keep forgiving me? Yes. 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 Do you want to abuse his forgiveness? No. That's why Paul would say, like, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But he said, far be it from us to continue in sin so that grace would abound. And what he means is, is I'm not going to keep sinning more intentionally so that God's grace would show up more specifically. That's abuse. I mean, any relationship where a person intentionally does something wrong against the other, that's called abuse, defined by that. No, it's wrong. But you struggle, we struggle. I don't need a show of hands. In the spirit, all your hands are up. (laughs) But blaspheming the Holy Spirit is not what sometimes we think that it is. So have we settled that? Just go ahead and say amen. amen. All right, well, that's not the only outrageous perspective. My gosh. The second perspective is this. Jesus is crazy. He's demonized and he's crazy. And this is the perspective of his natural family. And this is what I want to show you from the passage. The first, Jesus' family believed that he was out of his mind. Look at verse 20 and 21. He came home, that's Capernaum, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, this is his natural family, they went out to take custody of him. Now they're in Nazareth, which is 20 miles away. And this term, take custody of him, means to seize him. Or in other passages, it actually is the word that's used for arrest. Remember when Jesus was arrested? It says the guards came to arrest him before the crucifixion. Same word, they came to arrest him. They came to stop him. Dare I say, they came to save him. This is what they did. 
Now, Jesus' family heard about his miracles, teaching, the growing crowds, but there were a couple reasons why I think that they did this. I don't think it's just one reason, but part of how they came to this place where they would say he lost his senses is that they're, considering, they're thinking about how Jesus is directly and indirectly saying that he is the Messiah, directly or indirectly allowing people to consider that he is the son of God, and he's not stopping anybody from believing that. And so at some point they're thinking, this is crazy, what is he doing? And um, you know, we know that Jesus' brothers grew up with him, and although he didn't sin, it wasn't like he was doing miracles until he was 30, we know that's the case. And so, I mean, I'm just, I've got a brother and a sister, and if my brother or sister said, I'm the Messiah, I'd be like, pfft. <laughs> you know, so on a natural level, we gotta give some space here, just a little bit. But on a spiritual level, you've got to get it, like miracles, signs, wonders, power. I mean, all this is happening. It should cause them to pause, but John chapter seven and verse five says that his brothers did not believe in him. That's what we're seeing here. They do not believe in him. And so their determination about Jesus is he's lost his senses. This literally means he is beside himself. In our, in our world, we would say you're out of your mind. I was just thinking about this. Have you ever called someone crazy though? <laughs> it was like a murmur over the crowd. Online, we didn't hear you, so you could have said whatever, but have you ever called someone crazy? Okay. Now, okay. <laughs> There's a couple confessions I won't give, but one of them is whenever somebody tells me, just in a general sense, hey, I'm going to go skydiving, or I'm going to go bungee jumping, or I'm going to go buy something that I know they can't afford, in my mind, I don't say it always out loud. I don't. I'm, I'm very, I'm kind. But in my mind, I'm like, you are crazy. You was wrong. <laughs> it might come out of my mind. You, what's wrong with you? <laughs> what's wrong with you? Uh, when you're a parent and you're raising small humans and you teach them to tell the truth and they tell a lie and you teach them to do right and they do wrong, it is very often that you say, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Did I do that right? And they look up at you. And in their mind, nothing's wrong with me. I mean, I'm just enjoying life, you know? I'm just having my best life. That's what I'm doing. And, um, and so we don't, <laughs> what does it take to call someone crazy? I was, I was at the store one time and uh, there were two guys next to me. And one guy says, I'm Thor. You know, it's a Marvel reference. Okay. Thor, God of Thunder, He's not real. He's, it's a myth. <laughs> and guy says, I'm Thor. And the guy next to him says, how do you know that? And he said, God told me. And he, the, the guy next to him said, no, I didn't. So it's like, you know, I thought, I thought they were both crazy. You know, I thought they were, you'd think they were out of their mind. You right? You do it. I don't have another comparison. I'm just saying that Jesus is, <laughs> Shopping in Federal Way, you don't, you don't know. You know. One night I went to Winco, I won't tell you what happened. It was, it was bad. Late at night, things happen. You know. I felt at home, that was the stranger part. You know. <laughs> I felt like I need to come here more often. This is therapeutic. I stopped counseling after that. It was great. It was amazing. <clears throat> it's possible, though, that, listen, Jesus was being thought of this way by his natural family because they were afraid. They were maybe afraid of what was gonna to happen to Jesus, that he was gonna get killed, and, and he did. But this is an honor culture as well, and so I think they also probably thought, well, if Jesus is a reflection of our family and we don't believe him, let's go stop him. Let's go have an intervention. Let's go sit him down and take him out of this thing that's going on because it ain't gonna work out so well for us. It sort of reminds me of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26 where he's standing before King Agrippa and the governor Festus, and Festus says to Paul after Paul preaches the gospel to him, Paul was unashamed. Paul was preaching the gospel to like the presidents of his day and he didn't care and he had shackles and he didn't care. And he's preaching the gospel and then Festus says, Paul, you are out of your mind, same terminology. Your great learning is driving you crazy. Paul wasn't crazy, he just wasn't afraid. 
And this is the thing. Jesus's family, I think, was afraid. They were afraid. They didn't believe, and their unbelief drove them in a place of fear. We need to go save Jesus. We need to go stop Jesus. We need to go get him out of here. But we also need to cover our own tail. And let me say to you today that if you follow Jesus, if, you, if we really follow Christ, imperfectly as it is, but if we seek to follow his word, some people will think that you're out of your mind. Why would you fast? Why would you give? Why would you give your time? Why would you serve? Why would you go to Royal Family Kids Camp? Why would you do this? Why would you, why would you give your life away, give your time away? Why would you do all of that? I mean, I remember when I was an intern director, we had tons of interns for a period of years and I came into a conflict, a very real conflict with some parents of, of youth. And I didn't know this was their issue, but I found out really quickly that it was. I had all these interns signed up and I'm teaching them, I'm with them for about 20 hours a week. And, and it was sort of like secondary parenting in a way, which was totally fine, but you, you just find out what it really is. And as I'm leading them and, and walking them into life with God, we're, we're gonna do a fast, right? Amen, we're all excited about our 21-day fast we just did. So we're gonna do a fast. I'm leading these young people to passion for Christ. We're reading the book, and this is what the book says, so we're gonna do it. And as I'm leading them into this fast, I found out real quickly that some of their parents had issues. They were like, why would you tell my child not to eat food for a day? Are you? Mm-hmm, that's about right. And these were parents that went to the church. They weren't you. They were not you. But these were parents of the church. And now I'm in a conflict. I'm like, we're preaching the Bible. We're trying to follow the scripture. I'm not trying to be the parents of your kids, but I'm leading. This is what I thought they signed up for. And now you're telling me to follow the scripture is crazy. I mean, I could lose a couple meals just for the heck of it. Not even with it for spiritual reasons, but I'm thinking, this is powerful. Like, your kids want to follow Jesus. You prayed for this. And now that they're doing it, don't let the guilt of what you're not doing <laughs> be projected onto what they are doing. And that's what I was really coming into contact with. See, our fear comes out. Our fear comes out. And so we have this issue at times where as followers of Jesus, because we're identified with him, sometimes people would think that we're crazy. One of my family members said to me one time, you know, this is what they said. I don't know if I can, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but they said this to me. They said, you know, there's more things to study than the Bible. I mean, that was Thanksgiving. Now, I just want you to know, I was a good pastor. I didn't say anything in my, with my words. In my heart, I sinned a little bit. In my heart, I, I, well, I won't tell you what was in my heart. I gave it to Jesus. I laid it at the cross, you know. But it was so patronizing, you know. It was like, you know, there's more to study than the Bible. In other words, you are? Yeah. That's the narrative. Jesus' natural family thought he was crazy because they had natural thinking. That's why. Natural thinking will lead you to a natural conclusion. There isn't, there, there's a box there. The fact is, if you're following Jesus, if you're doing what he does, you are in your right mind. You're in your righteous mind. You're in your renewed mind and stay there. Come on, we need a renewed mind is what we need. And that's exactly what they needed. And the second part of this, Jesus' family sought to restrain him. That, I've alluded to that a couple times here. They came to arrest him, it says in verse 21. So they're on their way. It says they heard about it. He's lost his senses. Then they have to travel 20 miles. And then in verse 31, it picks up the story. I remember a story within a story. And it says this, then his mother and his brothers arrived and standing outside. Notice they're outside and everybody else is inside. I think it's prophetic. Maybe it's just, I'm making that up. But they're outside. They sent word to him in the house, called him. A crowd was sitting around him. They said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. I just think this is so interesting that Jesus's family is trying to pull him away from mission, even though they're not intending to. 
They're not trying to pull him out of mission. They just don't get the plan. They just don't believe in him. And so consequently, what we find is that people that do not believe in Jesus, people that don't understand the plan are not gonna understand your life either. They're not going to understand why it is that you have made the decisions that you have made, why you're willing to do what you're doing and go where you're going. Some people around you, if you get criticized or if things happen in your life where there is a narrative forming about you or around you, friends, we give it to Jesus because natural thinking leads to natural conclusions. And if you don't have the spirit, you cannot spiritually discern why someone would do these kinds of things. But it's important for us to recognize that there is this thing that people try to do to control Jesus. Now, in our culture, we don't have physically Jesus with us, but we try to control the narrative of Jesus by saying, you know, Jesus wouldn't do that. Jesus wouldn't say that. Jesus isn't really like that. You need to tame it down. You need to tone it down. You need to calm it down. You know, Jesus isn't really like that. That's what it is. We're trying to control the narrative about Jesus, about who he is and what he's like. They're trying to stop him. They're trying to seize him. They're trying to arrest him, pulling him off mission. That stuff happens today. It just looks a lot different. Trying to stop what Jesus wants to do. When people try to pull us off mission, we pray for them. We love on them. We're kind to them, but we don't obey them. We don't obey them, nor did Jesus. In fact, it leads us to our third and final most important perspective, the one that we all want. Jesus is the son of God. Any other perspective of Jesus is only a revelation of the person themselves. This is the thought that I had. Check this out. It's interesting that the two perspectives that we've studied, one is that Jesus is demonized and the other is that Jesus is crazy. His natural family thought he was crazy. The scribes and Pharisees thought he was demonized. What's interesting is their perspective of Jesus was a revelation of themselves. They thought he was demonized. Guess who was really demonized? It's a demonic doctrine. It's a demonic thought. It's a demonic spirit to be anti-Jesus. It's called the spirit of antichrist. The perspective that Jesus is filled with Satan or demonic is demonic itself. The perspective that Jesus is crazy is a revelation that you are crazy. You're the one that is crazy to think that Jesus is out of his mind. No, Jesus is in his right mind and he's restoring people to their right mind. You're the one that doesn't have the right thinking. It's a revelation of yourself to have the wrong perspective of Jesus. That's what it is. I was thinking about this like the only real perspective that we find obviously that we yield to, that we believe in is that Jesus is the son of God. But we see in these passages that our perspective of him informs and influences our reaction and response to him. If we see Jesus as Lord, we yield, we obey, we respond. That's the truth. If we see him as anything else, it's easy to resist. It's easy to walk away. It's easy to allow our reluctance and our hesitancy to move us from him rather than towards him. But this is how he responds to what the crowd told him about his mother and brothers being outside. Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, this is his disciples are sitting in front of him. He said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, some people use this passage wrongly. They, they will bring it up and they'll, they'll use it as sort of a, um, a way to say, like, if you're not obey, they don't say it this way, but I'm, using, I'm exaggerating for a reason. If you don't obey Jesus perfectly, then you're really not part of his true family, the real remnant. And I just, the older I get, the more I really seek to follow him and my desire increases for him. I am face to face with how I fall short. And so this passage was not a, what some would call a clobber passage. Like, am I really part of his family? Because I don't know if I always do the will of God. That's not how this was meant. What he was doing was looking at his disciples and he's saying, here's my mother and my brother. My true family are people that believe in me. My true family are those that are yielding to my word, listening to what I'm saying. They don't have another perspective of me. They don't think of me naturally. They don't think of me demonically. They don't, they don't think of me the way all these others are. These people are yielding to me. These, this is my true family. So when he says, those that do the will of my father, he's saying, those that follow me, the people that follow me are 
my family. So two things quickly. Jesus declares that he's the son of God. And then secondarily, everyone who does the will of God is part of his family. Do you acknowledge today that Jesus Christ is Lord? If you've come today and you aren't sure that you not only believe in Jesus, but that you're not in his family, his eternal family. The church is a family of families. It goes beyond natural bloodlines. This, this is something greater, it's transcendent. The church is a family from every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue. It's a beautiful thing that God created that he brings back together in his son, Jesus Christ. And so if you've come today or if you're watching online, and, and, and for those of you that have said yes to Jesus, you just say amen while I'm talking. But if you haven't, then today's that day. Jesus came to die in our place. He rose again on the third day to prove that he was God's one and only son and that he has the power to forgive sins. He ascended, he is in the right hand of the Father and he is retained in the heavens until a time of restoration of all things and that is called the second coming. And during this time, the gospel will be preached that people can be forgiven of their sins and they can come back into relationship with their heavenly father if they but yield to Jesus as Lord. You confess that he is Lord. You ask him to forgive you of your sins. You give your life to him. You turn from your way. You turn to Jesus's way. You are saved. You are part of his family. You are going to live forever in the presence of the living God. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is still popular. It still works and it is still the best news on the planet. If you're not part of God's family today, you wanna make sure that you are. The pastors will be available after the service and we wanna pray with you. Um, we want to walk you into a relationship with Jesus. If you're online, we're asking you to type something into the comments. We'll have somebody respond to you. You just wanna know Jesus. You wanna be sure that you're forgiven. I wanna say to you, if you struggle with your salvation today, if you feel like you're up and you're down, you're not sure if you're saved, you're not sure if you're forgiven, friend, come on up after the service. Let's pray for a few minutes, let's talk. For, let me give you some Bible verses. Let me show you what the assurance of salvation really is. And to be sure, to be absolutely sure, is grounded and founded in the cross and the resurrection of Christ and nothing else. Nothing else, not your performance, but his grace, amen? It's by his grace to be a part of his true family. C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity. He was famous actually for saying that we either believe that Jesus was a liar, a lunatic, or Lord, but we all get to choose. Either he was a liar, he was a fraud, what he said wasn't true. He was a lunatic, he was out of his mind, sort of like the people that I met at the store. <laughs> or he's really Lord, but we all get to choose that. We all get to choose. As I was praying today, I wanted to share with you um, a prophetic word. Now hear this, this could be you, okay? This could be you. I was praying and I, I, I saw this person in a vision. I don't know how to say it to you, but I, I saw a person that was, had their head down. They were on a chair and they, were, they had their head down. And I'm gonna say it the way that it kind of came to my mind. It wasn't verbatim, but it came to my mind this way. Uh, you're under someone right now, and I think it's in your job. You're under someone and it feels oppressive and painful and you're looking for an out and you're, wonder, you're wondering how this can be the way that it is. And you've sought uh, agency or reconciliation potentially, but that hasn't happened. So you're in a, probably a job situation, but you're under someone and it's become oppressive and it's become very painful and no changes have transpired. And here's what I heard the Lord say. He's gonna give you supernatural patience because God's gonna work on your behalf. God's gonna work on your behalf. I, I believe there's an anxiety in your life. It's not that you want it. It's not that you're manufacturing it. It's just present. And you're dealing with this thing in such a way where it's impacting your life. It's impacting your home life, not just your work life. And you wanna know what to do about it. And I believe we often should do things about something that is abusive. I'm not talking about something abusive. We need agency for that. But where it's not abusive, but it's certainly oppressive, I'm saying the Lord is gonna give you supernatural, this is the word, he's gonna give you supernatural patience to deal with that in a way and you're gonna watch him. And I'm not saying he's gonna remove this person, but I even think that God through his redemption can bless, strengthen and change this person. And so today I believe that if you've come under that duress and that's the sense over you, I, I, I believe this word is for you. And then secondarily, I had a vision where somebody was walking down a hall 
and you were walking up to these doors and they were all locked. Every time you went to open the door, they were, they were locked. And so as I saw this, I was like, Lord, what, is this, uh, what does this mean? And here's what I believe it means as I kept praying about it, is that you're, moving, you're trying to move forward in your life with the Lord. Like this is a season where you feel like there's been a thrust, there's been a little bit of wind at your back. And so you, going down the hall is like moving forward in life. You have the will to do. You've made a decision to keep going. And as you're trying to find that place where you're supposed to land of what's next, you think it's this door and it's locked. It's locked. It's lo- and it just feels like you can't land. It feels like you can't settle. You're like, I'm making progress, I think. I'm trying to move forward, I think. But it seems like everything's like shut to me. And here's what I sense the Holy Spirit saying to you today is that God is saying, keep walking forward, keep pressing in, and he's going to reveal that open door. He's gonna reveal the place of your landing. And this is a word of endurance and perseverance today. But you may just need that from the Holy Spirit, right? It's not a word where like, keep at it. It's a word where, Lord, give me endurance today. I need to keep walking with you in this. I'm not gonna give up. I'm not gonna sit down. I'm gonna keep moving forward. Amen. Would you stand? Let's pray. If this is for you, just we assume the position. If, those, if either of those words are for you, assume the position. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus today. We look to you and first we pray for this one person that might be here who is feeling oppressed or going through pain because of maybe it is a boss or a person that they're under in life. And it seems like no matter what they've tried, they can't change this person in the way that they are. They can't help them to see that the things they say and the way that they are in life is hurtful and not helpful. And I, I just pray for that person, Lord, supernatural patience today. And even as they leave, as, as we walk out of here, we would sense that what we've received is from you and not from man, but it's from you. A man or a woman cannot give to us what you can. And we're asking for you to give that to us today. And I thank you for it in advance. I pray for that testimony to come through. And Lord, secondarily, I, I pray for this person that has the strength and the will to move forward and it's almost like you've come up out of a place and it's been quite discouraging. And Lord, we pray right right now for endurance and perseverance. If that's you, just receive that from the Lord. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd breathe the ability to endure and persevere and to not stop. We, We pray that where that second voice, the satanic voice would come in to try to stop, hinder, and harm. Lord, we take authority over that voice. We expose it in the name of Jesus. You're telling us to move forward. You're telling us to keep going and you're promising us endurance to do so. You don't just tell us to do something. You give us the power to do it. So we receive that today and we thank you for it in Jesus' mighty name. Everyone said amen, amen. amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Northwest Church, go to our website, nwcfoursquare.org, or download our app in any of the app stores by searching Northwest Foursquare Church.